we should always be looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And, you know, we don't want to come on people with gangbusters, like gangbusters. We, we want to find entry points that are friendly and natural. And I was just thinking that one of the questions we do well to ask people, I certainly do well to ask it more than I do, is, um, so what do you think of Jesus Christ? What do you think of Jesus? It's a fairly non-threatening icebreaker, don't you think? That gets you into spiritual discussion, hopefully unpacking to them who you know Jesus to really be. Who do you think Jesus is? I think many of you have probably asked that question of people, and you've probably gotten the answer from many. I think Jesus was a, a good teacher. He was a good teacher of morality and ethics. And to be sure, Jesus was a teacher. He did teach morality. He did teach ethics. But as we turn to the Gospel of Mark again this morning, I want to remind you of something. <clears throat> Mark takes 10 chapters to deal with the teaching and the miracles of Jesus. But he takes a full six chapters, the final six chapters, to deal with the last week of Jesus' life, which is all about preparing for his death, his death by crucifixion on the cross, and his subsequent revelation. That proportion tells us something. It tells us that Jesus came to be more than a teacher of morality and ethics. He came mainly to die. Why? Because getting right with God and being forgiven of your sins is not a matter of morality and ethics. It's not a matter of trying to be good and live a moral, ethical life. To be right with God, to be forgiven of our sins, to have eternal life, we need a Savior. And the main purpose Jesus came was to die as the culminating, crowning sacrifice for sins. His substitutionary death was to put an end to all other sacrifices. That's why six whole chapters in Mark are occupied with the events of that final week leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, we are in chapter 14, and we've come to Thursday evening, the night before Jesus was to be killed. He has gathered with his disciples for the celebration of the Passover feast. And you remember from last time that he transforms that feast. He turns it into something else. He takes the elements of the bread and the wine, which, of which the Jews typically partook in the Passover, and he gives a whole new application. He says, this bread is my body. This wine is my blood, the blood of the covenant. He basically says, I'm transforming the Jewish Passover feast into something new, what has come to be the Lord's Supper, celebrating the death of Jesus. No longer is there to be a celebration of the passing over the Jews in Egypt when they put the blood on the, of the lamb on the doorposts and, and lintels? Rather, it is replaced with a new celebration, the celebration of the shedding of Jesus' blood for sinners. <clears throat> and it was during that supper that Jesus told his disciples, one of you will betray me. Now, Mark tips us off in his narrative as to who that is, that it's Judas. But the disciples did not know who it was. And for a moment, I want to turn your attention. You need not turn there, or you may, to John 13. And read a few verses from John 13, which is a parallel passage. It's, it's the upper room where they celebrated the Passover, beginning at verse 24. After 
Jesus says to his 12, one of you will betray me, picking up in verse 24 of John 13, Simon Peter gestured to him, oh, rather, 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That would be John. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. So the point is that the disciples didn't know who was going to betray Jesus. John knew Jesus tipped him off. And then Judas leaves. So my point is that in the passage for this morning, Judas is not present. There are only the 11. Judas has left to do his treacherous, deadly deed of betraying Jesus. So our text for this morning, following the celebration of the Lord's Supper or the the Passover changed into the Lord's Supper, verse 26 to 31. Mark chapter 14. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing. First thing we want to see is that Jesus makes a startling prediction. First note the setting of the prediction. They have moved from the room where they celebrated the Passover to the Mount of Olives. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Jesus was going there because he wanted to prepare himself for what he knew was coming down, his arrest and his subsequent suffering and crucifixion. And so they go to the Mount of Olives. The hymn that they sang was part of the Passover feast. It's called the Hallel. It's songs of thanksgiving and praise drawn from Psalms 115 to 118. So they're going to this place of seclusion, the Mount of Olives, where was the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the setting for the prediction. The substance of the prediction is this. Jesus says, you will all fall away. The word fall away is the Greek word skandalizo, from which we get scandal. And it literally refers to a stumbling block. But in the New Testament, it's not used so much physically as putting a physical stumbling block in front of someone. It's used metaphorically in the sense that a stumbling block is something that causes you to lose trust or lose belief. And so in John 6, Jesus gives some hard teaching, and then he says to his hearers, does this cause you to stumble? Is this causing you to turn away from me in unbelief? In the parable of the soils, the word is used. There are some who hear the word, but because of persecution and affliction, they stumble or they fall away. They're led to unbelief. And so Jesus is here predicting that the 11, all of them, without exception, would stumble in this way. 
that they would all come to desert Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus knows this in advance. We have seen that sometimes he chooses to use his omniscience as God, and he knew this was going to happen. He himself knew what was in man. He knew all men, and he also knew what the plan of his father was for him. Now, no doubt this would have troubled the disciples to hear this. You're all going to fall away. Remember earlier when Jesus had um, said that one of you will betray me, it was troubling to them. And each one of them said, surely not I. None of them could conceive of themselves as deserting Jesus. After all, they had been with him for three years. They had suffered a lot of deprivations with Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know, they would have suffered some of those physical deprivations following Jesus. They would have shared in the spiritual persecution that Jesus was getting from his enemies. You remember sometimes the the Pharisees would attack the disciples because they were identified with Jesus. So their lot was wholly cast in with Jesus. And it was hard for them to imagine that with that kind of commitment that they would have uh, betrayed him. They could not imagine that. But do remember that to the very end, Their idea of the kingdom Jesus had come to bring was a carnal one. They had had not internalized the fact that Jesus' kingdom would involve suffering. They still had the notion that he was coming with a military, political kingdom. But Jesus knew what he was in for. He knew what was in man, and he predicts that you will all fall away. What is the source of the prediction? Looking at the text, it says, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Jesus here is citing an Old Testament reference. We might call it a messianic prophecy. It's from Zechariah, the next to last book in the Old Testament. Now, Zechariah 13.1 has this beautiful statement. In that day, some future eschatological day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. We know what that means, right? A fountain. It will be the fountain of Jesus' blood that cleanses us. And then a few verses later, in verse 7, he, the, the prophet gives a hint as to how that's going to happen. In verse 7, he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. There's a future day of cleansing from sin, and in bringing that about, an associate of the Lord of hosts, a certain shepherd will be struck. Jesus is now applying that to himself. This tells us something about prophecy. Why will they all fall away? Because it is written. Now, one thing we note is that prophecy is not given with the clarity of pre-written history. Do you think Zechariah knew exactly how this was going to be fulfilled? Probably not. Old Testament prophecy does not come with the clarity of pre-written history. 
But the other thing it teaches us about prophecy is God's word is certain of fulfillment because it is God's word. This was usually the formula that preceded the prophecies in the Old Testament. It is written, or thus says the Lord. So Jesus says, you're all going to to betray me. You're all going to desert me. Why? Because it is written. And whatever is written must come to pass because it's God's word. It also reminds us that Jesus believed the Bible. Jesus believed the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. He took the Old Testament to be the very word of God. And if we don't, then we are out of sync with Jesus. But in this prediction, you will all desert me. There is a comfort, what I'm calling the salve in the prediction. This is shocking news. It's sad news. It's bad news. But Jesus didn't come to bring bad news. Jesus came to bring good news. Jesus came to bring hope. He came to usher in the reign of grace where sin abounds. Grace superabounds. So here's the bad news. The shepherd will be struck and they will all fall away. But here is the good news in the text. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You're all going to betray me. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead to Galilee. The bad news, the shepherd will be struck. The bad news, you will all fall away. The good news, the shepherd will not remain stricken, but will be raised. And the sheep who will be scattered will once again be regathered. They will be led forward by their shepherd. Bad news followed by good news. A stricken shepherd and then a risen shepherd. A scattered flock, then a regathered flock. Does that sound familiar? That's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel begins with bad news. Christ is killed. And it follows with good news. Christ is risen. The gospel begins with bad news to you and me. The bad news is you are a sinner under the wrath of a holy God and destined for eternal separation from God in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the bad news. That's where the gospel begins. The good news is you don't have to go to hell. The good news is someone came and died in your place to take all of your sins so that if you put your trust in him, you will be spared eternal judgment and enjoy eternal life with God in heaven. That's the gospel. Begins with bad news, ends with good news. So we see that Jesus makes this startling prediction. You're all going to... Depart from me. But now, Peter takes self-confident exception to Jesus' prediction. Look at verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Now, it's not the first time Peter contradicted Jesus, right? Remember earlier in the Gospels where Jesus said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and suffer the hands of the chief priests and elders and scribes and be killed and then on the third day rise? Peter recoiled. Oh, no, Lord, this can't happen to you. And then Jesus, who affirmed him earlier for saying you're the Christ, had to rebuke him, get behind me, Satan. So it's not the first time that Peter disagreed with his Lord and took issue with his Lord. All will fall away, Lord, but I won't, not me. Trying to correct Jesus. Well, it reveals two convictions in the heart of Peter. First, a sense of confidence in himself. 
I will not. His words are filled with self-confidence. I will not fall away. I'm strong. I'm courageous. I'm resistant to temptation. I can resist the pressure and the suffering. I have fortitude. I have commitment. My commitment to you is rock solid, Jesus. It's unflappable, Jesus. I know myself. I won't stumble. I won't fall away. There's no way I will desert you. Peter exudes a self-confidence based on a supposed self-knowledge. I know myself. I won't desert you. But there's also in Peter a sense of superiority over his fellows. Though they all may fall away. Lord, I know myself. There's no way I'm going to do it. I'm not so sure about those guys. They may desert you, as you say. The prediction may be true with regard to them. And again, not only a self-confidence, but a sense of superiority over his fellows. I'm better than them. I'm stronger than them. I'm wiser. I'm better trained. I'm better equipped. I have more courage than them. They may, but I won't. Peter has spoken. And then we see that Jesus makes a more specific prediction, verse 30. And Jesus said to him, not to the 12 in general or the 11 left, but to him in particular, truly I say to you, that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Peter has argued with his Lord. He's disagreed with his Lord. Jesus is being corrected by one of his disciples. Will Jesus stand for that correction? Well, you know, brothers and sisters, sometimes we misspeak, don't we? And sometimes we need to retract our words. We need to modify our words. If our words have been hurtful, we even need to come and say, I spoke those words wrongly and hurtfully. Will you forgive me? Right? We often sin with our tongues. We misspeak. We speak things that are ill-timed or ill-worded or even less than completely truthful. So with ourselves, sometimes we need to go back and retract those words, ask forgiveness for our words. But Jesus is without sin. He never sinned. He never sinned with his words. He never spoke an untruth. He never lied. He never even exaggerated. And so far from allowing himself to be corrected by his disciple, Jesus repeats the prediction, but this time he makes it more specific. You see, Peter thinks he's the exception. They they may deny you, Lord, but I won't. Well, will, will Peter confidently exempt himself from Jesus' prediction? Well, let him hear Jesus' more specific prediction concerning himself. First, note the strength of the prediction, Jesus says, truly I say to you. That's our Greek word, amen, from which we get amen. It's taken from the Hebrew verb amen, which means let it be so. And it's it's metaphorically used to mean what is faithful and true. When we say amen, we're saying yes, let it be so. And when Jesus says truly, amen, he says this is very certainly true. Jesus then adds strength to his original prediction. Not only will all fall away, but concerning you, Peter, in particular, I have an especially trustworthy word. 
And you can count on it happening. Truly, I say to you. And note the specifics of the prediction. He names Peter as the specific person. You yourself, Greek su, a second person pronoun used for emphasis. Peter, would you single yourself out as exempt from the rest and put yourself above others? Well, I'm singling you out now, Peter, for special attention. I'm making you the subject of my specific prediction. And he predicts the specific time. Today, this very night, the specific occasion before a rooster crows twice, which would be just before dawn, the specific frequency, what you do, you will do not just once, Peter, but three times you will deny me. And the specific action, you will deny me. You will deny that you have any connection with me. So Jesus is saying, in effect, Peter, you're wrong. You think you're the exception to my prediction, but you're not. You are no better than the rest. In fact, Peter, you are going to offend more grievously than the rest. Peter, you do not know your own heart as you think you do. You will fall. You will fail. And then the final point of exposition, I have a lot of application, is Peter takes still stronger exception to Jesus' specific prediction. Verse 31. Jesus says, truly I say to you, he's singling out Peter, that this very night, names the time before a rooster crows twice, you yourself, Peter, will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. Uh, This is bordering on argument now. Peter's not backing down. He will not lose his point. He is sure he knows himself. There's no way he's wrong about this. I'm not a quitter. I'm not a coward. You see the strength of his words in that he repeats his claim. He was saying is an imperfect tense in the Greek, which meant he didn't say it once. He was saying repeatedly. By the intensity of his claim, he was saying insistently. That Greek word means Uh, with intense earnestness. He's repeating with intense earnestness. And the nature of the claim, if I have to die with you, Jesus, not only will I not deny you, what more can I say but that I'm willing to die for you? What more can I give than my life for you? And so Peter takes still strong, he ratchets it up, still stronger exception to Jesus' prediction. So Peter remains undaunted, unmoved, unconvinced of Jesus' prediction. He is rock solid in his confidence in himself, his own commitment, his own courage, his own ability to resist temptation, to withstand whatever danger or suffering he might face. Peter has spoken. Peter, the rock. And Mark goes on to say that all the rest were saying the same thing also. We see how impressionable we all can be. Remember when um, Judas took exception to Mary pouring the ointment on Jesus and he was indignant and then it says all the rest were indignant too. They were just jumping on the bandwagon and here, you know, they were just following suit. Peter says, no, I won't deny you. And all the rest chimed in, no, we won't either. But clearly Peter is the ringleader here, isn't he? Peter is, is the pace setter with his own confident bravado that... Though the rest might, he will not 
deny Jesus. Well, the rest of our time, I just want to take and, and make application to ourselves because there's a lot of application here for us. I want to point out five things, and the first is we need to learn how deep is the deceit in the human heart. Peter thought he knew himself, and as a result of that, he had great self-confidence. I got this, Jesus. I know myself. I'm not going to deny you. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or desperately sick. We don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. You know, we really didn't know ourselves before we were converted, before we became Christians. And if there's anyone here this morning who is still not a Christian, you especially You don't know yourself as you think you do. You talk to most people, and Ray Comfort even has a a good person tract, which I use sometimes. It starts out by, do you think you're a good person? And most people will say, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. And then he gets into the Ten Commandments and just shoots them down, that you're a lying, thieving, adulterer, murderer at heart. And then he leads to the gospel. But most people would say, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. And you know, in a realistic sense, if you're an unbeliever, you may be a relatively good person compared to a lot of other people in society. But the problem is we judge ourselves by, on a horizontal basis by other people. But to make a correct judgment, we need to judge ourselves against God. And God is unspeakably pure and holy. And in the sight of God, we are all filthy, wretched sinners in thought, word, and deed perpetually. And if you're to have a right view of yourself, my unbelieving friend, you need to come to see yourself as God sees you. This is what happened to the Apostle Paul. His testimony in in Romans 7, 9 is this. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now, he was familiar with the law of God. He'd probably memorized much of it. But he was thinking, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm alive. I'm doing okay. As a Pharisee, as a religious person, I'm I'm doing okay. I'm alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, what does it mean? When it came to his consciousness, when he really understood what the law was saying, sin became alive. It's like in Pilgrim's Progress where the law is like the broom that stirs up the dust on the floor and, and you begin to choke on that dust. And, and when, when the commandment came, sin became alive and Paul all of a sudden saw, I am a covetous man. I'm a lustful man. I'm a sinful man. And I died. I realized I'm not as good as I thought I was. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to ask you the question, in what direction are you going? As you hear sermons, maybe you read the Bible, maybe not. Are you seeing yourself as more and more sinful, worse and worse? If so, that's a good sign. You're coming to the light. Keep coming. Keep coming to hear sermons. Keep reading the Bible Let God show you what you are really like in his sight so you'll come to see your need for a savior. But if perchance you're becoming more and more self-righteous and seeing yourself as gooder and gooder, that's the wrong direction. You're lapsing further into into self-deceit. But you see, not only unbelievers, 
but even we as believers still don't know ourselves as well as we should. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not by that acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Plumb as deeply as I might to try to see my own heart, I can't plumb deeply enough. I don't see myself as sinful as God sees me. And so we need to be aware of that. And that means that when we look at other people, other sinners, we should never say, oh, I would never do that. Oh, I could never do that. Because we are capable of the most grievous sin. To be honest about ourselves, we do better to say, no matter what that sin is, there but for the grace of God go I. I am capable of that. Not, I could never do that. Oh, yes, you could, barring the grace of God. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So that's the first thing. Learn how deep is the deceit in the human heart. And then secondly, learn that Jesus knows the hearts of all people thoroughly. You see, when Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, it follows with this. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. We don't know our hearts as well as we should, but God knows them perfectly. Jesus knows our hearts perfectly. He knew the heart of Peter. He knew the heart of the disciples. Peter didn't know his own heart, but Jesus knew it. And so Psalm 139 speaks this way about God, and Jesus is God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there is a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. The Bible says about the Bible, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and discerns um, to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. So Jesus knows the hearts of all of us thoroughly. Third, we need to learn to trust Jesus' diagnosis of our hearts. Peter was wrong. Jesus was right. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Oh, no, Lord, no, no. He took issue with Jesus. He would have been better to submit to Jesus and say, I don't want to do that, Jesus, but your truth. And if you're saying that's true about me, it must be true because you never lie. We need to trust Jesus' diagnosis of our own hearts. Unbeliever, if you are to know what you are really like in God's eyes and not delude yourself about what you think you're like, you need to know how God views you, and that is found in the Bible. Let me just give you a sample of how God describes you. You know the Bible talks about you? It talks about you because it talks about the whole human race. And if you're human, as far as I know, everyone here is a humanoid. There are no aliens in that sense. And you're human. These things are true of you. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, that's all of us, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. If you're an unbeliever, Jesus says you're defiled, you're unclean. Accept his diagnosis of you. Don't self-diagnose. You'll get it wrong. 
You're not the best doctor of your soul. Jesus is the great physician. Believe what he says about you. You're not a good person. You're not clean, but he can cleanse you. But then for us as believers, thankfully, God has shown us our hearts. He showed us enough to bring us to the foot of the cross, right? At some point in time, if you're a believer, God brought you to the place where you said, oh, wretched man that I am, God be merciful to me, the sinner. You saw at least enough of your sinful heart to go to the cross and beg for mercy. Praise God for that. You gave up self-diagnosis and you accepted Jesus' diagnosis. Yeah, I really am a filthy sinner and I need to be cleansed by your blood. But God's not finished with us, is he? He's continuing to sanctify us. And if he's to continue to cleanse us from remaining sin, he needs to continue to reveal the sin that remains so that we might deal with it, right? That's the process of sanctification. And so even as believers, we need to let Jesus continue to diagnose our hearts so that we might continually be purged and purified from the sin that remains. How does that happen? Well, by prayer. The prayer of Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search me and know me, see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. It comes from reading the scriptures, not as a history book, not as a textbook, but reading the Bible as a mirror to see ourselves in it. When the Bible lists the catalogs of sin, say, now where does some of that remain in me? What of those sins still characterize me? When we see the examples of sinners in the Bible, to let that show us our remaining sin, when we see the holiness of God, especially seen in the virtuous life of Jesus, to compare ourselves and let the purity of Jesus' life expose the remaining sin in us. And then we will continue that process by being open to the hopefully loving and kind corrections and exhortations of others. You know, Proverbs says, reprove a fool and he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Sometimes corrections, reproofs come to us from other people, sometimes believers, sometimes other believers. If we would grow in grace, if we would purge our our hearts of remaining sin, we, we need to be open to that. Don't be the fool who pushes it off, but receive those corrections. And then we need to allow the providential circumstances of life to train us further in self-knowledge. You know, there are certain seasons in life when more of our sin is exposed than in the past. For example, when you get married. I remember I was a polished single person. I had this single life down, you know. I was single until I was 30. I I got this, you know. Uh, I think God has knocked off quite a bit of the sandpaper and rough edges. Then I got married. Oh, my. All of a sudden, new depths of selfishness emerge, right? You have a child, and all of a sudden the demand of that crying child keeping you up at night makes demands upon you. Then you have another child, and you have a third child. As the children keep coming, you, you begin to see more and more of your own heart, right? Trials and afflictions reveal our hearts. Even prosperity, good times. Remember how Paul said, I've learned to be content, not only in the hard times, but, but in the good times. When, when there's abundance, he has to learn to be content, not trust in that prosperity. 
The important thing is that when God reveals more of our hearts to ourselves, that we respond rightly, that we don't make excuses, we don't rationalize, we don't blame shift, we don't run from the truth, but we face the truth about ourselves, own it, humble ourselves, repent, claim the forgiveness that is in Jesus, and ask God for fresh grace to kill the sin that he has exposed. You see, our Father loves us too much to allow us to wallow in our present state of sanctification. He, it's out of his love he disciplines us and purges us of more of our sin. Why? Because he knows that the happier we, the holier we are, the happier we are. And he wants our happiness. And so he doesn't let us wallow in our current state, but he presses us onward. He who covers his sin will not prosper, says the proverb. He who confesses and forsakes will find compassion. And then, fourthly of five, learn that we ourselves, like Peter, can have too high a view of ourselves. Peter thought too highly of himself. Lord, I'll never do that. I'm not capable of that. I won't do that. He had too much self-confidence, and so sometimes do we. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. In Romans 12, 3, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sober judgment. And isn't it sweet coming from the mouth of Peter, especially 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Especially significant coming from Peter, right? Who had to learn that lesson. God resists the proud, the self-confident. He gives grace to the humble. And then finally, learn the secret of the strength in the Christian life. There's a paradox here. Christians, on the one hand, are painted as very weak people. Very weak people. We're not dynamos in ourselves. We're weak people. God has chosen not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble. We're, we're, not, we're nobodies. There's a sense in which Christians are presented as very weak people. But there's another sense in which Christians are presented as the most powerful people in the world. Peter did not remain that self-confident man who would later be crushed by his own failures. But we see him on the day of Pentecost, taking a stand with the 11, raising his voice and declaring to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Skipping down to verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of God men and put him to death. That's not a Christ-denying Peter. That is a boldly confessing Peter at the risk of his life. And tradition tells us he was crucified upside down for Christ because he, he didn't want to be dishonor Christ by being crucified in the same way. And so he said, crucify me upside down. Peter didn't stay that way. Why? Because he was strong in himself? No, we see what he is in himself but because of the grace of God that had overtaken his life. You see, Peter had a can-do mentality. I can do, but he was leaving something out of the formula, wasn't he? He was leaving out what Paul fills in in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
The secret of the Christian life is that we are weak in ourselves, but we are strong only in his strength. The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves. Consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And the crowning statement about God's strength in our weakness is clearly in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, where Paul having this thorn in the flesh that he prayed three times, God, take it away. This is hindering my ministry. Take it away. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, where power is perfected in weakness. Paul concludes, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses for the the power of Christ, my weaknesses, for the power, your power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses for the power of, that the power of Christ might dwell in me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the secret to power in the Christian life. God's power perfected in our weakness. It's a paradox. It doesn't make any sense unless you factor God in. The world will tell you, no, you need to be assertive. You need to get assertive train, assertive training. You need to be strong. You need to project yourself. You need to promote yourself. God says, no, when you are weak, when you feel your weakness, feel your inadequacy, then you are strong, for that unleashes the power of God on your behalf, and therefore it is all to his praise and glory and not our own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson from Peter. And we have all been Peter, confident in ourselves, sense of superiority over others. To the degree you have humbled us, we thank you. We pray you would continue to humble us and show us our own weakness that we might apply to you for grace and strength that you promised to those who are weak that all the glory might go to you, to whom it belongs. In Jesus' name.